welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We are going to be recognizing and uh, receiving a message about the persecuted church and how to pray for the persecuted church today. I've decided to make that a special emphasis today on this Communion Sunday. And uh, one of the texts that I'm going to touch on, I'll use as our opening text this morning, it's John 15, Jesus Christ's own personal prediction of the life that we would experience if we have life in him and we're living for him. This is John fifteen eighteen to 20. Let us hear the word of God. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This is God's holy and prophetic word. May we hear it in all its fullness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you can be seated. Thank you. Well, the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is actually a, an event in the life of the church worldwide today. It has uh, been in existence for many years, and uh, there have been different points in my ministry in which I've emphasized it in my preaching ministry at different churches. For a variety of reasons, I have not done so here, just to scheduling and just a lot of other things that I really can't explain, but I've been thinking more and more about taking uh, this Sunday and devoting it to that matter. It's become more and more of a burden on my heart over the last year. And uh, one of our staff uh, uh, encouraged us to to make a special mention of it this year, and it's been on uh, her heart for some time. And I really appreciate they appreciated that encouragement. And it just caused me to meditate about that and And so we're not only going to mention the International Day of Prayer, we're going to be involved in it today through a message and a time of prayer, and we're going to build our communion as a communion of fellowship and remembrance with the persecuted church. Uh, The International Day of Prayer, and it's a day of prayer for the persecuted church, is recognized worldwide today. You'll see in your your, uh, bulletin there an insert that talks about it, a... uh, particular emphasis is being made this year on Western Africa. And that means a lot to me because I had the privilege of visiting the persecuted church in, in, in Africa in the year 2005, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. There is also a video produced this year that is meaningful to me because it talks about the suffering of the church in Northern Nigeria. And, uh, that's where I was taken. That's where I was uh, led to go. And uh, I saw and walked through that suffering firsthand. 
Years ago, I was a Christian radio talk show host, and uh, I was chosen along with a number of other Christian radio hosts from across the country to be sent on a, a, a kind of a private undercover trip to the persecuted church in northern Nigeria, one of the most insecure places on the planet at the time. The great persecution that began what we now know as the persecution in Nigeria uh, began in the early 2000s. The year 2004 was the worst uh, time of bloodshed. Whole, Whole villages had been burned and whole populations of Christians by the hundreds had been massacred. Churches had been leveled and, uh, uh, the year after that, uh, I was sent with this group of other talk show hosts to the country to record their stories. They sent pastors and other church leaders anonymously uh, under secret names through secret routes from the highlands into the larger cities of Jos and uh, in northern Nigeria where we were. We met with these pastors. They were under assumed names. And the itinerary was kept secret. We were under full, uh, full uh, armed guard the entire moment. There wasn't a moment when we were not guarded uh, by guards with automatic weapons. It was quite the journey. But the stories and the glory that I heard there and saw there changed my life forever. We were uh, charged to go as talk show hosts to gather these stories to get a firsthand sense of both the suffering and the need for Bibles. The thing that they asked for more than anything else was prayer and Bibles. Most of the villages that we visited had one Bible in the entire church. One Bible. I remember being in the pastor's church where who had one tattered paperback Bible with the back partly ripped off. It was the most precious possession in the village. He was the only one with a copy of the Word of God. And so we went back and got on our radio programs to our audiences and told their stories and raised tens and tens of thousands of dollars. I think my show alone filled a semi full of Bibles that went to these villages in northern Nigeria. It was a great honor. And so while I was there, I saw the famine of the Word of God, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I saw that the video for this year talks about the very experience that keeps on going in northern Nigeria, I thought it would be a good way to introduce my comments to you today. The persecution has worsened, the bloodshed has deepened, and uh, that's really the hot spot of Christian bloodshed in the world today, northern Nigeria. It was my privilege to walk through villages like that, to walk past the burned ruins to uh, hear the stories. Of believers herded into buildings and the doors shut and then the buildings burned. Or machete attacks through congregations. One of the most solemn points of my life was when I stood at uh, a particular gravesite. In fact, there's a photo that we can show of it. This was outside of a, one of the larger churches that had been surrounded. And uh, the believers herded inside and slain. And that is a mass grave where 400 bodies were placed awaiting resurrection day. I was there with, with our team as uh, that church 
was getting ready to call its pastor, a new pastor. The pastor had been killed at the, at the altar with machetes, and his son had been away at school, and his son made a decision to leave his schooling in engineering and the future that his family had planned for him, and he was coming back to take his father's church and to stand in his father's place and to stand in the, in the, in the place of threat that his father had given his very life for. We as a visiting team stood in the midst of that church with the, the rebuilt pews, but the still darkened walls on the inside. And we sang, it is well, it is well with my soul. With the believers that had gathered, the small group that had had the courage to come back to the village and who were going to restart that church. It was profound. Other churches were being rebuilt and, and we were taken to a small a uh, small church, and that's the second photo, uh, on the day that they were reopening. And uh, we were their special guests, if you can believe that. And the believers came from the fields all around that small hut that they had built out of mud, rebuilt out with their own hands. You could see the imprints of the hands dried in the interior of the walls as they held the walls in place and beat the mud into place so that their church could be rebuilt in that small village in the fields. And this was a woman who had led that effort and who uh, was uh, one of the primary uh, voices in the recall of the gospel in that, in that land. Quite remarkable. And so um, we heard stories and we saw glory. Many stories of suffering, of loss of life, the shattering of families, the shattering of futures, and yet we saw glory in faces and in hearts and in lives, not just in spiritual leaders, but in everyday believers. As they sang us into church and kept believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their greatest request was for Bibles, but their most, most earnest request was for prayer. And uh, that remains the truth today. So I want to just take us into a, a short time in the Word of God before we celebrate communion and remember them at communion by uh, taking us into two things so that your focus and your thinking can be sharpened. Two calls. First is a call to understand something about persecution, why it is so deep and vicious. And then the second is a call to intercede. How do you pray? for the church as it lives under this kind of persecution. First of all, a call to understand, and there's just two things that I want to take you to from the scriptures about what persecution is and why it's, it's so deep. How do you define persecution? Well, the experts have given us a definition. Here it is, quote, persecution is any hostility experienced as a result as an, of an identification with Jesus Christ. Any hostility experienced as a result of an identification with Jesus Christ. And that, as you can imagine, covers a broad spectrum. And the experts tell us, as I've mentioned a, a number of times, that there is a spectrum of persecution. There is what is known as soft persecution at the beginning end of the spectrum in, in many societies, and it runs all the way to what is called hard persecution, as in the societies in Nigeria, West Africa, 
Korea, China, Indonesia, Iran, India, and other places. What's the, the distinction? Soft persecution is when your identification with Jesus Christ creates personal or social loss. Relational, reputational, verbal, uh, economic, that kind of thing. It progresses if the identification is kept and the hostility of the society deepens against Christ all the way into hard persecution, which would be what I call not just social but personal, where, where something personal is lost in your life and it's usually civil freedom. That's when the law comes into play and begins to create personal penalties for an identification with Jesus Christ. Personal losses, civil penalties, uh, jailings and physical harm and physical death. So that's hard persecution. This here is soft persecution. And it seems to build through that spectrum in most societies. So that's persecution. The, the, the churches we're praying about today are in the harder persecution category. What's that like today? What's going on in the world today? Just a couple of things uh, to mention to you. Uh, today is an international day of prayer for the persecuted church, and it's set aside for churches like ours to come together in behalf of persecuted Christians who stand as a bold witness for Christ in the world's most dangerous mission frontiers. If you can imagine facing torture and death for just five words, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's who we're praying for today. That is actually a reality for more than 360 million Christians in the world today. It is the largest number of persecuted Christians, people at risk in the hard persecution spectrum in world history. More believers, are, believers have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in the previous 1,900 years of the church combined. Much as Jesus predicted in Luke 21, the persecutions and the birth pains and intensity of it will increase as the times of the end roll. I personally believe we're seeing that today. Christians are now officially the most persecuted people group, group on earth. One in eight Christians worldwide are persecuted for their faith in the hard, perspective, hard persecution part of the, the, the spectrum. Every two hours, a Christian is killed for following Jesus Christ. There are a lot of distinctions that have happened just in the last few years uh, that have made persecution increase. Some of them are situations, some of them are technological. COVID-19 has enabled religious persecution to gain a new excuse. Relief discrimination, forced conversion, and increasing surveillance have been found from researches from Open Doors to have occurred in many nations because of the COVID uh, context. And many Christians were told that they are denied aid from their governments because, quote, your God should feed you, end of quote. So COVID-19 has increased discrimination and oppression among believers, particularly in different countries. Technology is also making it easier for governments to control and suppress religious activities. The world leader in this, as you probably know, is now China, the foremost example of an oppressive regime that utilizes advanced technology to manipulate behavior and to surveil Christians. 
China, in fact, has now jumped higher on the world watch list this last year to number 17. And it's amazing that that world is there that low because there's worsening religious freedom conditions in the largest country in the world. It is one of the most difficult countries now to be a Christian, not just the house churches, but now even the state sanctioned churches are facing increasing pressure. So a lot of things have developed. Just a couple other things. Uh, This last few years, the world's largest democracy, India, is now among the 10 most difficult countries to be a Christian because in its great resurgence, India has adopted the Hindu nationalist movement in which the idea and the slogan is to be Indian is to be Hindu. And therefore, uh, it leaves little room for those of other faiths, particularly Christianity. So massive persecution has broken out in the world's largest democracy in the last five years. Africa, however, remains the darkest place in terms of of deaths. 91% of recorded violent killings of Christian happen in sub-Saharan Africa, where I was in Nigeria, and all the way to the north. And more Christians are murdered in Nigeria again this year than in any other country, an estimated nearly 6,000 in uh, one year from attacks from Boko Haram, Fulani, herdsmen, and and the ISIS affiliates that are in the country. So it is worsening and darkening. That's the context worldwide. But I said I wanted to help you understand the nature of why this happens. There are two things that you should understand biblically among many that I could teach. I had 10 here in my notes, but uh, just the the top two. Persecution has an ancient source, biblically. And I want you to look at Genesis 3.15 with me. Persecution emerged in the very first death in the Bible. Abel murdered for his devotion to the commands of his God. In Genesis chapter 3.15, right after the fall, however, we see the spiritual root of persecution that Adam and Eve had sinned and they were beginning to taste the consequences of that. And then God brings Satan into view and he begins to bring judgment down upon Satan. He curses the physical snake in in Genesis 3 and then he turns to the spiritual being behind the snake, which was Satan himself. And in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to Satan who was embodied in that snake who was the source of the temptation. And he says, I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're talking here about an age-long hostility that began that day when Satan turned Adam and Eve that will continue all the way through the end of time. God speaks to the spiritual serpent, Satan himself, and he brings a curse upon him. And he says, there is going to be enmity, hostility, hatred between you and the woman. What is the woman there? It's a singular woman. He's not talking about Eve. He's talking about a woman, in my opinion, yet to come. One singular woman in history, the virgin giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time-spanning text, as so many are in Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring there is singular in the Hebrew. It's talking about one particular individual. What's this all about? 
Well, the offspring of the devil, it's Satan and, and basically unbelievers. The scripture in John eight forty four calls those without Christ the children of the devil. And there is one pure offspring of one unique woman in history. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a prophecy of his coming. A prophecy that in the midst of the human wreckage of the Garden of Eden, there was already a plan of God set before time began in which he was going to send a rescuer, one who would defeat the plans of the wicked one. And he would come through a particular woman. He would be born as the God-man, the perfect son of God. And he would come into time. And there would be ongoing hostility between the woman's offspring, who is Jesus Christ, and Satan and his offspring, the children of the world. And this would go on until an event occurred called the crucifixion. And the Bible says that basically time is summed up in verse 15. At the end of time, this one who is the offspring of this woman, the Messiah, shall bruise your head, Satan. He'll crush you. He'll destroy you. But you shall bruise his heel. You'll bring physical suffering to the Son of God on the cross, You'll think you've destroyed him. He'll rise from the dead. He'll destroy your plans instead. And one day at the end of time, you will be judged and destroyed by him. So you see time swaying throughout this text. And so what's the great ancient source of persecution? It's the hatred of Satan against the Son of God and all those who are his. The hatred of one who knows his time is coming where he shall be destroyed and the hatred of the one who wants to attack all those that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ because of that very fact. Oh, one day, Paul said to the believers who were suffering in Rome, in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's good news, isn't it? But until that happens, we are the special targets of the enemy. And so there is an ancient source to our suffering, to the suffering of the believers that we've seen on film today. This is why Jesus said in John 15, the text that I read to you as we opened, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's powered by the father of darkness to hate Christ himself and all those connected and loving Christ. It's an inbred, timeless hatred that will only escalate as the times grow darker. And so it has an ancient source. Jesus said, if they hate me, hate you, it's because they've hated me. And so, well, basically Jesus Christ is a dangerous God to know, but a precious God to know, isn't he? So we wonder why persecution has been so constant and has been so long in history and is worsening toward the return of the wonderful one. This is why. Secondly, there is a constant target to it the righteousness of Christ's people. The righteousness of Christ's people angers those without Christ and it angers the devil himself because it reminds them of what they lost and it reminds them of what's coming, the righteous rule of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 23, we don't have time to turn there, but Jesus said basically all those who've ever been persecuted are persecuted and their blood is righteous blood. From Abel, who was killed in the very first moment of hatred against one who was obeying God by somebody, Cain, who was not. All the way through history, Jesus said, it's because of the righteousness of my people. 
So really, the only way to escape persecution is to abandon the Lord Jesus. Because it is the righteous life that he lives out through you that antagonizes a society that hates a righteous life. The world's first death was a martyrdom. And the world's passion to continue that stream is not going to die until Jesus returns. But you see, when we convert it to Christ, we change sides, and that's where the trouble comes. <laughs> we leave darkness and we live for righteousness. We're a lifelong point of conviction and irritation to those who love darkness. And so, therefore, the more you live for Jesus, the more you'll suffer for Jesus. So, persecution, it has an ancient source, and if you're going to live righteously for him, you're going to suffer more. And the more a society darkens, the more it will antagonize righteousness because the conflict of light is so great. So it's a pretty unique thing. It's not just social opposition. Some people believe today that that, that the church of, of Jesus Christ is suffering persecution. I wouldn't say that we're necessarily suffering it in the classic sense yet. Will we? Of course, if we live righteous and godly in Christ Jesus. Moral or political positions suffer more of what I would call opposition. Persecution comes because of a relationship with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and because of the righteous living out of his life through you. It is a spiritual, spiritual experience. Is it coming? Oh, yes. If we live for him, it will. But it has already come to 360 million believers this morning around the world. So the question comes, how do we intercede for them? How do we pray for them? How do you ask God to walk and work in their incredible situations like we've seen today? And how should we pray for our future? What will we pray for us? That's what I want to close with, and that's just a call to intercede. And I want to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to just remind you of four dimensions of how to pray for the persecuted church, how to intercede for those that are suffering under deeper persecution than we taste, but some of the persecution we will taste. There's four things. Number one, we need to pray that they will remember that Jesus is with them. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 10. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul said, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In a way, this is an indirect prayer guide from Paul about his own suffering. And it's all about suffering. It's right in the middle of the text, verse 9. I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Verse 10, I am enduring for Christ. So it is obviously about suffering. And in Paul's words about what to remember, there are four things that I, I really believe are kind of a prayer guide for the persecuted. 
The first one is, remember that Jesus is with you. We need to pray for the church today around the world that they will remember that Jesus is with them. I gain this from Paul's first phrase in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What's there? He's telling them, remember that this is all for Jesus and that Jesus is with us in everything we go through for him. Why is that true? Because he's risen from the dead. One of the great comforts in the Christian life is knowing that now that I know Jesus, I'll never be alone again. Fundamentally, in in its essence, you'll never be alone again now that you've trusted Christ. You not only made a faith decision, you welcomed a living person into your life. And the Bible says he came into your very being in the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the scripture says. How can that be possible? Because he rose from the dead. One of the great powerful points of the resurrection is that he rose from the dead. He is alive and ever present today in the person of the Holy Spirit. He can be everywhere with every one of his believers at the same time. And so, as we pray for the persecuted church, pray for them to remember that Jesus is risen and he's with them. They're not alone. He is a very present help in time of trouble. I heard miracle story after miracle story in Nigeria about how God showed up in miracle power to rescue, to protect, to provide for these dear believers who it was mentioned earlier, I think Liz mentioned it, who have next to nothing. But he showed up in mighty ways because he is with them. And so we need to pray that the believers will know that Jesus Christ is with them more than ever before. He is a very present help in time of trouble. Secondly, we need to pray that they will remember that the gospel is worthy. Paul goes on. He says, this risen Christ is preached, verse 8, in my gospel for which I am suffering. Why was Paul suffering? Yes, for Jesus, but he was suffering for something even more specific than that. It's right there in the transition of the words. He was suffering for his gospel. The gospel clarifies the truth about Jesus Christ. It says that men and women are lost in sin and headed to hell without a Savior. And there is one and one only who came into time, one descendant of David who fulfilled all the prophecies, one individual who came into history, died on a cross, and history says rose from the dead, who is the solution to that eternal problem. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ, he and he alone. You know, the enemy doesn't mind if you talk about Jesus. He just gets irritated if you talk about Jesus as the only Savior. And this is what Paul says. My gospel says there is no way, no other name given among men under heaven by which you may be saved. So the gospel is the cause of direct persecution because it exalts the uniqueness of Jesus. And Yet it's worthy to suffer for. Paul says, I am suffering. Greek is the present tense there. I'm suffering in ongoing degrees. Why? For my gospel. I'm suffering for that gospel that I love, and I'm never going to let loose of it. If Paul had repudiated the gospel, would he have stopped suffering? Overnight. Get out of jail free card. 
All he had to do was call for a special hearing before the praetorium and before the emperor and say, I've given it a lot of thought and I no longer want to stand for this gospel. I'm open to all the Roman gods and all the worship of the empire. Just allow me to have Jesus as my God, but you can have yours. It's a cafeteria kind of thing. Immediate freedom. Paul said, no, there is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. So I'll go back to my jail cell now. You see, the gospel is worthy of it all. And therefore, we need to pray for the persecuted church to remember that the gospel is worthy and to never abandon the gospel. You abandon the gospel, the suffering stops. You don't, it continues. Pray for them. Today, in many of our society, there are lots of people abandoning the gospel or minimizing the gospel who've called themselves Christians. They're making moral decisions. They're making philosophical decisions that allow the world into their faith like you can't believe. And you're wondering, what, what, why, are they, why are they able to do this? And what Jesus did they really know? Did they really come to Christ? Well, a lot of them came to Christianity, but I'm not sure they came to Christ because the gospel, once you come to Christ, is your most precious possession. I'll put it this way. To lose the gospel is to lose you if you really know him. Therefore, if somebody calls on you to lose your gospel, you're going to hold on to it because it's you. If it really isn't you, if it was just a feature for a time in your life, if it enabled you to have more positive friends in your life, if it gave you more, uh, for a time more purpose in your life, if it helped you have a better marriage in your life, if any of those things change because you're suddenly persecuted, you'll let go of the gospel unless the gospel has got you, unless the gospel is you. Remember, to pray for them to hold on to the gospel is worthy. Two more and I close. Thirdly, remember that the Bible is unchained. Help them remember that. He says, I am suffering for this gospel. I have no intention of stopping. I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. What a play on words. Paul says, I'm, I'm locked with chains to the wall of a Mamertine prison in Rome. But the word of God isn't locked in chains. He uses the same word. The Bible's unchained perfect passive in the Greek. It means the word of God has not been and is not now chained. It never will be. So many believers today are suffering and they're alone and they're suffering silently, but help them to remember that the word of God is still moving and that the God that they love is still conquering. They're temporarily suffering and alone, but encourage them with the fact that the word of God is moving throughout the world today. Yeah, there's a lot of persecution going on, but there are millions and millions of people coming to Jesus too. Don't forget that. Yes, Africa is the source of the greatest persecution right now in terms of bloodshed, but there are tens and tens of thousands coming to Christ. Look at our ministries in Ghana. Look at the eight churches that got started just this last year through our giving in the African continent that we saw a couple weeks ago right on this platform. The gospel is unchanged. People think, but because the church of, of, of Jesus Christ is persecuted, it's defeated. No, that's exactly the opposite of the attitude to have. It's because the church is, is making an impact that it's persecuted. If the church was sterile, it wouldn't be persecuted. That's why I'm saying persecution, I hope, will come into our culture. What? Because what does it mean? Is the gospel sterile or is the gospel being stood for. I hope the gospel is stood for and then persecution comes. Lastly, pray that they will remember that the lost will be found. 
Paul said, oh, I'm suffering for this gospel. I have no intention of stopping ever. I'm bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is going boundlessly out into the culture. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul had an uber confidence that no matter what he was suffering, the gospel was still going to change lives and the lost will come to Jesus Christ. Nothing stops the gospel. Nothing stops Jesus Christ. Nothing stops the great harvest. The lost are going to be found. And Paul knew it. In fact, in some crazy way, he knew that his suffering was powering the church. Like he said in Philippians, all my suffering has turned out for your good so that the gospel is now advancing. God uses it all. He's never defeated ever. So those are reminders about how to pray for the church in Africa and India and China and Iran. And what I want to do right now is just take a moment and allow you to do something for just a a gathered moment in a church that you may not have done, and that's pray with intention silently for the persecuted church. And then we're going to have communion together with them and in many cases for them because many that are persecuted today can't be next to another believer and cannot touch the elements and cannot remember Jesus. So bow your hearts with me for just a moment. I'm going to ask you right now in the silence of your heart to pray for the believers in Africa today, particularly sub-Saharan Africa where the persecution is great. The southern... Not so much. Eastern, not so much. Pray that they will remember that Jesus is with them. The risen Jesus. Now I want you to gain the believers in India in your mind that are undergoing so much new persecution and the church is reeling there. Help them to remember and pray for them to remember that the gospel is worthy. Now shift your heart to the believers in China, surveilled and troubled, where the Bible is actually being translated by the Chinese government to include communist teaching. Help them to remember that the true word of God is unchained still, that the word of God is not bound or broken. Pray for the pastors there, the house church leaders there, the itinerant teachers who teach there. And finally, pray for one of the the most emerging places of gospel conversion in the world today, but also one of the most oppressive, Iran. There are more people coming to Christ per capita right now in Iran than any other part of the world. And they're all coming mostly through electronic means, the gospel beamed in, the internet, 
electronic programs that they get on their phones, satellites. But gathering in the name of Jesus is different. Help them to remember that no matter how much they're oppressed, that the lost are going to be found and to have courage to know that all of God's people are with them this morning. The believers in Iran, most of them alone. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering in prayer before you, before these people. And we ask, Lord, that you would, even now as we enjoy the the privilege that we're so used to of communion, as our worship team now comes to the platform and prepares for us to worship you, that we take it today in remembrance of those who can't take it. And as we give you thanks, that we'll give you thanks on their behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.